0: Thank you, Amberly. Uh, it is such a gift and an honor to be able to hear the word of the Lord together. It's very humbling to share uh, reflections or a sermon on the scriptures. You know, I was talking to a friend yesterday how um, the scriptures are meant to be handled, they're meant to be read. You know, they're not meant to be placed on a shelf or isolated in certain places, but they're meant to be carried around with us, written down on note cards in our back pockets and in our mind from stories that we heard as kids and from stories that we heard from friends last week, and they're meant to be shared and talked back and forth with and wrestled with, and so that's what we try to do as in Sunday mornings is, is hear God's Word uh, from His Scriptures and all the ways that He speaks to us in the sacraments and in conversations with one another and in the hymns, and so it's a joy uh, to be with you in that work today. Well, it's basketball season. I know it's still football season, but it is basketball season officially. Um, I was uh, with a, a friend, Ricky Thompson, this week. Many of you know him. And, and we were in our first, I can make it sound more fancy, our inaugural practice for first and second grade girls this week. Uh, so that that's what happens when basketball starts. And Ricky was telling the kids he did a great job. He sat around and he's sitting on the ball and had those girls looking at him. And he said, now, kids... I love the game of basketball. He said, "When the weather gets cold like this, he said, there's no place I'd rather be than a basketball gym." And I was like, "Man, that is that's some inspiring stuff right there." And I was kind of thinking, "Man, I like to be in a warm gym when it's cold outside too." Uh, and then, you know, if only I could, I had the, uh, the physical ability to demonstrate that like Ricky does. But anyways, we we had a lot of fun with with those girls, and and uh, look forward to a lot more fun this year. But youth basketball is early evidence. That we are poor judges of ourselves. Amen? We are poor judges of ourselves. Now, you'll always have, and you remember which kid you were, right? Whatever it was that you played or the first time you tried to, you know, certain activities. Uh, We're in one of two camps. You know, we're either the kid that starts out and we immediately start the first drill and we start saying either in our mind or out loud, we had one who literally said this out loud. She's going along and she's going, I'm terrible at this. I'm terrible at this. I'm terrible at this. Right. And we're all either thinking or saying it, or you have the kids that are saying, I'm amazing at this. I'm amazing at this. I'm amazing at this. I don't need a coach. I'm amazing at this. I already know everything. Here we go. Right. And we're one, we're one place or the other. Either way, we're pretty lousy judges of ourselves. <clears throat> and uh, when we are responsible for judging ourselves, we tend to miss with too high or too low of an appraisal. And so today we're going to explore the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the resurrection reality that we hold to and believe in as Christians, and that if Christ judges us, if Christ considers us worthy, then we are worthy indeed. So we turn to the scriptures in Luke chapter 20 that Amberly read for us. It's a fascinating text. It's a little bit of a Tough text, or one that you kind of look at and go, oh, gosh, i got to do that one this week. Even she, when she saw that she had to read it, she goes, oh, great, the Leverett Law. I get to read that one today. This is a lot of fun. It's a strange text, right? This is why we just kind of go through and we try to wrestle with them as they come. But Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem. Remember, we've been up to this point. We've been on the road with Jesus. We've been traveling, all this travel narrative. Jesus passing by cities and places and showing his disciples along the way hey, here's what it means to be a disciple, and here's what it looks like over here, and if you're standing over there, and it's just great stuff. He's moving along. Well, they finally reached their destination. They've landed in Jerusalem, where Jesus uh, will ultimately suffer, where he will die, uh, and on the third day be raised from the dead. And Jesus, even before he goes into the city, he stops, and he pauses, and he begins to weep for the city. And he pleads with them you know if only you had listened to peace if only you had been willing to listen to opportunities for peace we wouldn't be in this situation that we're in because jesus knew where he was going and why he had to die so after weeping for the city he goes into the city he spends time you know he cleanses the temple he does the stuff and now he's teaching in the temple area and jesus has had all kinds of opponents along the way we've heard a lot about the pharisees we're beginning to hear about the chief priests and the scribes. And I mean, there are liter- there are spies, there are politicians. there are all- It's just like today. You know, anytime somebody's trying to get something done, there are spies and politicians and everybody's watching and everybody's trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to catch him. And when they don't catch him and they put forth their best efforts, they all marvel, Luke tells us. They marvel that they were unable to catch Jesus. And the only way they finally catch him, of course, in the end, is that he gives himself... They're just trying to trap him. They're trying to catch him. They're trying to do something to catch him off guard, and so they come up with these crazy scenarios. So the Sadducees—we first this is the first time we hear about the Sadducees—and they are a uh, a group of Jewish leaders who do not believe in the resurrection. So they they hold fast to the five first five books of our Bible, first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah. And they that's all that they're interested in. They think they're kind of like those people that are just the fundamentals. You know, the fundamentals are like we we had those first five books and that was good enough. You know, or whatever it is, whatever version for us, they were ready to go. They thought they had it figured out. They did not believe in the resurrection. So it's kind of funny that the Sadducees, who did not believe in the resurrection, give Jesus a hypothetical scenario about the resurrection. So it's kind of funny, but it's meant to be ridiculous. And if you heard everybody read it, it is ridiculous. They ask, okay, Jesus, uh, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and has a wife but no children, then the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, this is, this is called the Leverett Law. It goes back to Deuteronomy, it's mentioned in Genesis, and it has everything to do with taking care of the widow. So the Leverett Law says, if I, if I am the oldest brother and I marry a wife and I don't have any children, or I do have children, if I die, my next brother in line would have to marry my wife uh, to give her security, so she wouldn't be a widow, and to maintain my legacy uh, because I'm the oldest son. So that's that's how that would have to go down. So it was twofold purpose: it had to keep, it had to take care of the widow, and it had to maintain the integrity of the name of the deceased. So it was a very practical law. Uh, we used to joke about it all the time. You know, which one of my brothers would uh, take up the slack if? if uh, And so, but anyways, it's, it's, it was a very important thing. It was serious business for them. And so, uh, this law comes along and and they create this goofy scenario where, okay, well, there's, there's, you know, this brother and he's supposed to do this. Well, then that brother dies. And then the second and third brother die. And it goes on seven times, right? So in the scenario, uh, the poor woman is married to seven members of the same family and there's no children and they just keep dying. And then in their hypothetical scenario, they say, and afterward, the woman also died. And I've got to imagine that Jesus, with a sense of humor, was like, well, I imagine so that she did after seven times of all this ridiculousness. And so the woman also died. And then they say, now, Jesus, and you can imagine, you know, they've all got their pipes in their mouth going, now, Jesus, in the resurrection, whose wife would she be? And Jesus is just like, oh, my goodness, this is great. It's just this is this is teeing it up for Jesus. Now he's ready to go. He's set up. And Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and give consent to marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor allow themselves to be married, for they cannot die anymore. They are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. So, the Sadducees miss the point. All right? They missed the point on the way the future is going to shake out. And it's affecting how they behave in present time. And this is how it works in the kingdom of God. Uh, Robert Weber, a great worship theologian, said that, that we hope, as Christians, we hope from the future. I always love that phrase, that we hope from the future, that what we see in the future is the grounds for our hope. And so it begins to work backwards into our lives, and and it changes our behavior. It changes how we live today because of what we believe will happen in the end. So we know the end of the story, and it changes everything about the middle of the story, and the beginning of the story, and wherever we're at right now in the story. So the Sadducees missed the point. They missed a couple of points here. That's what we're going to talk about today as we find ourselves in the story. Uh, the Sadducees missed the point, and, and one of the points that they miss is on the subject that they considered themselves to be experts in, which was Moses. All right. So we're going to actually start with like the end of Jesus' teaching and work our way back through to the beginning. So the Sadducees missed the point on the subject of Moses, uh, which was supposed to be their area of expertise. Now, as I said, they're they're Torah-only people, the first five books of the Bible, right? Just give it to us straight. And notice um, what they say when they talk to Jesus at the beginning. Now, teacher, Moses wrote for us. You hear that? Moses wrote a few things down for us. Now, we're not sure about you or everybody else, but he wrote a few things down for us. And that's why we don't believe in the resurrection. So he goes on, and so Jesus kind of turns it, in and he says, now, by the way, guys, uh, not only are you off in some other places, but the fact that there is a resurrection from the dead, he's like, it's real easy for me to see that Moses taught y'all about that. Y'all just missed it, and here's what he says. Remember the burning bush? Remember that account where Moses prays, and the God that he prays to is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? Jesus says, God, God, is a God of the living. He's not the God of the dead. He's, he's God of the living. And the scripture here says that for to God, all of them are alive. He's like, why would he be the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob if those guys were dead? If they weren't still able to live, and how can they live if there not be something like a resurrection? So Jesus just very quickly and succinctly kind of sets them right on that point that they miss. But going on the big point that they miss by just missing the resurrection altogether, they miss the point on the future. They miss the point of where they would place their hope. And they do this in a couple of ways. First is just failure to accurately assess that there is an age to come, that there's an age to come that we can look forward to, that they should be preparing for and living as though it was real. Jesus talks about it a little bit. He said there's an age coming where folks are neither married nor giving consent to marriage. It's it's different. The people are no longer identified as sons and daughters of Bob or Joe or Bill or Ryan, but they're identified now as sons and daughters of God. The literal translation is they are children of the resurrection. They are like the angels in that they no longer die. That's a big one. Their legacy is no longer tied to any name. Or the name of a family member, but all names find their glory under the name that is above all names Jesus Christ. So not only do they fail to accurately assess that there is an age to come, but because they miss that, they also fail to understand that the age to come, the future, bears heavily upon the present. So, remember the Lord's Prayer, which we just prayed together. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is where? In heaven. May your kingdom come in this age as it will be in the age to come. That's what Jesus is trying to teach us. This age, uh, excuse me, the age to come uh, teaches us a lot in this age about relationships, right? The age to come completely redefines relationships. One example of this is right here in the text. Women, for example, are no longer given in marriage, which was, again, a a way that everybody survived. It was just how the patriarchy worked. It was the culture that they lived in. It's how they took care of everybody. But in the age to come, that's no longer necessary. Biological birth is no longer necessary. So marriage in that sense is no longer necessary. So women are no longer given in marriage. And so the the middle voice of this phrase here that consent and mutuality increases now uh, in the present because of God's kingdom. So it's not just up to whichever brother decides to do whatever, but now everybody has a voice and mutuality is on the upswing And we're learning about relationships from the future, from the age to come. And it changes how we relate to one another today. Another one that I notice about how the future affects the present, how the age to come affects how we live today, is that suffering is vindicated in the age to come. Suffering is vindicated because we see Jesus suffer and die on a cross. And in Jesus' suffering, he is redeeming, in a sense, our suffering. The phrase here where Jesus says that, that for those who are considered worthy of the age to come, it's a beautiful phrase, for those considered worthy, In other words, someone else is deciding if people are worthy of the age to come. And it's not me, and it's not you. It's not we who get to decide whether we're worthy of the age to come, just like it's a bad idea when we decide how good we are at basketball when we first start out. That's why we have a coach to objectively assess who is worthy and who is not. But this phrase, considered worthy, only happens three times in the New Testament. The other two times are in areas where the languages that we are considered, that we might be considered worthy to suffer for Jesus. Now all suffering that we endure is not suffering for Jesus per se, right? When awful things happen to us and we see things like cancer and that, so it's not like we're suffering for Jesus. It's not like Jesus needed us for that. This is looking at persecution and things like that. But I think in that way it applies to all suffering that if Jesus suffers and dies for us, and begins to redeem our suffering, it changes how we live today. It makes us maybe not so afraid to suffer alongside others when they're suffering, to suffer with people as Christ suffers with us. So Jesus is saying, don't get caught up in hypothetical scenarios where you might be called upon to do something someday, but become instead the kind of person who just takes care of the widow, right? Become the kind of person whose life is transformed and begins to look like the age to come. And then all of a sudden, the present age is transformed because of the light that we bring around us. Jesus is saying, don't waste time with too many hypotheticals about, you know, what you might do if or what Christians should do if. For goodness sake, we have plenty of opportunities around us. We don't need more ifs. We have relationships, we have jobs, we have families, we have businesses. We have been called to this place at this time. And that might change tomorrow, but here we are today. There are ample opportunities for us to live a transformed life for the glory of God that will bring hope and healing to others. We don't need more hypothetical situations about what we might do if. All of us have been called Uh, to a place, to a life. And so, as we begin to allow ourselves to be transformed by the realities of the future age, the resurrection life, this happens as we realize, as we remember that we are sons, that we are daughters of the living God. Uh, This is what our baptism is all about. This is what we always refer back to, right? It's the starting point. It's the waters that we come through. It's the starting blocks. Of the Christian life, where we remember that everyone starts at the exact same place, right there in the humble, simple waters of baptism, where my identity is at its core and most fundamentally son of God, and yours, son of God, son or daughter of God. And so as we invite that reality, that news to transform us. As we allow even our dispositions to change. Isn't that amazing and miraculous how even our dispositions, our tendencies can change when they're uh, given over to God and the power of the age to come? That we begin to do things differently than we used to. That we don't instinctively fear things that we used to fear. That we don't instinctively react to things that we can instead respond to with grace. Our dispositions even begin to reflect the age to come. And the world needs to see transformations like this. The world is listening for that sermon where I stop talking and they see something different about my life. The world is hungry for that sort of news. For those considered worthy, Jesus says, to attain the age of the resurrection from the dead, the age to come, So, finally, the Sadducees missed the point regarding who it is that makes the assessment of worthy or not worthy. Even if they would have allowed that someone else has to make the assessment, they were pretty sure it was Moses, and they were pretty sure they had Moses figured out. So, in a sense, they were just making their own assessments anyways, right? They were still just making their own self-community assessments, just patting each other on the back. We're doing pretty good. Worth. But being worthy, being considered worthy of the age to come, it's not a self-assessment. It's not self-justification. It's not self-promotion. The Sadducees were presumptuous. They made the assumption that there was no need for anyone else to consider them anything because they already had considered everything and were pretty happy with what they figured out. We're good. We're doing pretty good. Everybody just kind of leave us alone. We'll be all right. So arriving at the status of considered worthy does not come through our own feeble efforts of comparing ourselves incessantly with others. It does not come through the constant tug of war of, well, I've got honor over here, but not there. And I'm a member of this, but not that. And, well, that guy is ahead of me in this, but I'm ahead of him in that. One of the lessons that my dad taught me and he wasn't a big one-liner guy, but I remember a couple of these one-liners. I and mean, if they only shared these one-liners with you, you'll think, man, my dad was just like this corny phrase guy. Uh, but we all have our corny dad phrases and things. And dad's, one of his was that he loved to say, well, son, no matter how good you get at something, there's always somebody better. <laughs> that was his way of encouraging me, you know, having me on the back. Say, so you should, it's okay to get a little better, but no matter how good you get at something, there's somebody always better. There's always somebody smarter. There's always somebody that's studied it longer. There's always somebody that's been practicing longer. There's always somebody out there ahead of you, which kind of illustrates the futility of comparing ourselves to others and trying to find our worthiness in that. Because even if, if my worth is dependent upon comparisons to others, I will always be falling short. Because even if I'm really good, according to my dad's logic, there's, I'm I'm still only 99% of the way there. Like there's still going to be that 1% that nags me somewhere and I'm not quite going to make it. And so we'll just fuel the fire with that, the drive to just get better. It's a dead end. And we know that. Comparing ourselves to others, the tug of war of honor and shame. And that's what Jesus is trying to invite the Sadducees. He's like, guys, I know y'all look pretty good compared to this and compared to that. But can you just wake up to the fact that you could see things a little differently that you could still use some grace in your life that you could still use some help in your life so the resurrection age brings to the present the good news that if God designates us son or if God designates us daughter we are considered worthy outside the small minded comparisons that we make to others it's non-competitive But it's genuinely the same with this baptismal designation that God makes. So I don't know where you sit today. Uh, I can see myself right in the middle of that Sadducee crowd. And I've been hard on them all week as I've been studying. And I'm like, I'm just right in the middle of those guys. I love to talk about hypothetical stuff. I love to imagine scenarios where, if I ever ended up, you know, in Indonesia, what might I do? Or if something happened and we lived in a situation like the 1930s, and we lived in Croatia, or so, what might we do? It's like, good grief, Strebech. Just focus on what we have here, what we can control. Or are you the kind of person who tends to overvalue or undervalue yourself? Have you considered that there is a way? There's a gift to be free from both errors. Have we considered that Christ alone is the judge who considers us worthy or unworthy? It's an invitation to allow humility to increase, to allow our trust in someone stronger and wiser and more kind and more loving than us to hold the keys. There is a great freedom that comes from handing Christ the scales. Uh, my basketball coach in high school, his practices were always written on a three-by-five note card, and it kind of became legendary for us. But that was the ultimate standard of how we were doing. And I just imagine as I was thinking about the basketball analogies, you know, there's a great freedom in someone else holding that card because you don't have to worry at night or wonder, like, Am I worthy or am I not? Someone's gonna be able to tell you that coach is watching. And in this case, we know Jesus is able to see. And he sees the right stuff and he misses the wrong stuff. I mean, he just disregards the wrong stuff. And so there's a great freedom that comes with that. Uh, if you're a super perfectionist like me, just knowing that someone else will lovingly, lovingly judge us gives great freedom. I don't have to judge myself. And so uh, may you find yourself just seeing yourself standing before a loving God who holds those keys, who holds that clipboard, who holds that assessment lovingly in his hands and says, you are my son, you are my daughter, with whom I am well pleased. Amen.